This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's the world's premier expeditionary force, yet every U.S. Army soldier has a home or a home base. Often that home is in housing provided by the Army itself. Army housing has been a sore subject for residents, Army leadership, and Congress, but there's been progress. For an update on this and other matters at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference, Federal Drive host Tom Temin talked with the commander of the Installations Management Command, Lieutenant General Omar Jones. You have moved up a notch to have, from deputy commander to commander, got an extra yeah. star on the I shoulder. Did, yeah. So what's the difference between being the commander and the deputy commander? Remember what uh, you know, President Truman used to say, the buck stops here, so that's the buck stops here. But I, I am just so grateful. So the Army leadership gave me a year last year to be the deputy. And you know, met the team, got to understand the science. There's a lot of science to run in installations around the world. And then just privileged. Uh, I would nominate it and then confirm by the Senate to uh, both get promoted and then take command, took command right after the 4th of July weekend. And Tom, I got to tell you, I think I have the best job in the Army. We touch everything the Army does, soldiers and families, all the way to deploying forces to to get off the installations, go have to go around the world. It is it's incredible. I am enjoying every day. And maybe it's they'll great. update the website yeah. to get you actually there as a commander. Just, <laughs> That'd, just be That'd be good. That'd be good. Okay. <laughs> Slowing some things. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Let's okay. talk about housing. That's Absolutely. been a big bugaboo. It has I know been. We talked yeah. about it last year. Yeah. There have been lots of improvements. You've made some mm-hmm. yep. certain homes and certain bases yeah. have been specifically refurbished. Yeah. The AUSA study just came out. Mm-hmm. Mixed reviews on residents' mm-hmm. feelings yeah. and attitudes toward the yeah. housing. Give us the update yeah. on where you're headed here. Okay. It's interesting, and it goes across the command in so many areas, so really the quality of life. All the trends are going in the right direction, and we have, as you've heard, incredibly um, resourced and uh, um, emphasis from our senior leaders, the Secretary of the Army, the Chief Staff of the Army, in terms of the quality of life, taking care of our people, and, and housing right, right at the top of that list. But even though the trends are in the right direction, we have to make sure every single family is taken care of. What I bring to this job, the perspective I take, so I've been in uniform 30 years. I have three sons, two are serving today. One is getting married in two weeks, and he's married to another service member. So I always think about, we may have, you know, we have 100,000 homes in the Army we're responsible for. And if one family's not getting taken care of, I look at that from, what if that was my family? And we've got to make sure we take care of all of them. But the trends are going the right direction. We've invested about $1.6 billion over the past three years of the privatized housing companies to improve quality of housing. We think we're going to see another, um, I'm sorry, $800 million over the past three years, another $1.6 um, billion over the next three years just to improve the quality of housing. Um, and, and, and it needs to be. It needs to be the right quality. It needs to be safe. It needs to be a place that people feel proud of. And, and then they're happy to live there. So I think we're heading the right direction, but we, we've got work to do. And we've got to keep going forward with that. And I yeah. also wanted to ask you mm-hmm. about the other kind of big issue when it comes mm-hmm. to installations, and that is climate Absolutely. There's the political reality, then there's the actual Mm -hmm. climate reality. Sometimes those things diverge. Mm -hmm. But we've seen flooding. We've seen installations affected. What... uh, I guess the question is, how to begin with, how do you prioritize what you need to do where? Because some parts are high up above the ocean. Some parts are right hard by, you know, the seas. Well, it actually starts with our mission. The Army exists to fight and win our nation's wars to do what our nation asks us to do. And when you start there, then we get back for the installations. They have to be resilient because we, all the Army forces that deploy, deploy from our installations. So how can we make sure that if we were to lose power, 
that the installation still has power. If we were to lose water, the installation still has water to do all the things the country needs the Army to do. So that actually makes the prioritization pretty clean when we look at it to make sure that, you know, from a resiliency perspective, are our installations able to support what the Army and the Joint Force need to do for the nation? So that's how we look at climate change and, and climate risk, whether it's storms, whether it's increasing utility costs, whatever it happens to be, that's what we look at is can we do the mission the nation needs the Army to do, and are we maintaining that regardless of what the challenges are going into the future? And so that drives our prioritization. We're speaking with Lieutenant yeah. General Omar Jones, commander of the Installation Management Command. And just update us on that. You mentioned utilities and mm -hmm. power, yeah. and a lot of the installations and bases mm -hmm. we're looking at. Solar. Absolutely. Any way of self-generating yeah. that is to be not necessarily on the commercial grid. Mm -hmm. If the, What's yeah. going on there? What's, We've made what's tremendous progress over the past year. We've gotten great policy from, from the Army headquarters, and we're implementing that policy across all of the installations. And again, if you start with resilience, then it gets to renewables in a lot of ways, whether it is solar, whether it is other opportunities are out there. But we're looking at all the possible tools to make sure that we can reduce costs so we can make sure we're being efficient with the, with the money the taxpayers have given the Department of Defense and given to the Army, but also that we can be able to do the mission that we're asked to do. And it is incredible the ingenuity that's out there. And in many cases, partnering with industry, partnering with local communities, and we're seeing great results because of those. So yeah. are there windmills yeah. going in? Are there solar arrays going in here and there? All, all of the above, but the primary one right now is, is a lot of solar. Um, we just put a solar array down at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, actually a floating solar array on a local lake. So the solar panels are out on the lake, and it has given us great resiliency there for one, one of our um, really important installations. Yeah, that's a big yeah. one. It is, quite, quite, yeah. And so you have to have yeah. the metrics in place to understand. A absolutely. Are, are we being more resilient than we were yesterday? Are we more efficient than we were yesterday? And, and we look at those all, all the time. Because that resiliency yeah. could result mm -hmm. in higher costs per kilowatt, say. It could. Than it, being it, on it, the, absolutely. Then you have to decide what yeah. value matters more. You do. And that's exactly how we look at it. All right. Yeah. And, well, COVID, too. Mm -hmm. And that's a big yeah. installation issue. It because is. This is an ever-changing situation. Yeah. It's mostly behind mm -hmm. the nation, but mm -hmm. not fully. What's yeah. the status on installations? Uh, 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 what are the protocols? Mm -hmm. What are you seeing mm -hmm. in terms of infections and mm -hmm. so on? Well, the approach the Army has taken to really empower our senior commanders. So those general officers are the senior leaders that are out there on the installations to make those decisions based on what the community spread looks like in the, in the local communities, outside the installation as well as on the installation, and then set the health protection level and then from there, make sure they're taking all the appropriate precautions. So far, uh, all the trends are going the right way. Um, most of our installations are what is called health protection condition A, which is our, uh, almost our lowest condition. Um, and so it's, we're a lot better situation where a year ago or definitely two or three years ago. And but let me talk COVID one moment if I sure can yeah. for you. One of the things that I am most proud of this command is the child care, child development that we provide to Army family members. And the reason I highlight that, because when you look back during the pandemic, the nation still had things that needed its army to do. And the way we were able to support that was we kept our child development centers open so that single soldiers, so soldiers where both, um, both parents were working, um, they were still able to take their kids to the child care. And in many cases, the heroes of those child care workers could come and 
each and every day and taking care of those children so that their soldier parents were able to do their job. And every time I travel, and I travel all over to go see our installations, I always stop by to thank our child care workers because it really is the gold standard of child care across our country, and those folks are incredible. Yeah, well, having yeah. raised a couple myself and now four <laughs> grandchildren, those people should have halos. I, I absolutely agree with days. you. <laughs> all right, so what are you yeah. hoping for in the next year? What do you want this whole installation management command to look like? That we can keep taking care of the Army. Um, that my focus will continue to be on Army people, um, making sure that we can take care of the infrastructure that the people need you know, for the quality of life. Because when you look at quality of life, when you take care of our people and they go back and they talk to folks in their local communities um, and they can tell them that the Army really does put its money where its mouth is. The Army really does invest in all of the things that take care of the quality of life because that takes care of our readiness and that supports what the Army needs to do. And that's where my focus is. And again, I, I don't, there's no better job in the Army. I'm thoroughly enjoying it, Tom. Lieutenant General Omar Jones is commander of the Army's Installation Management Command, speaking at the AUSA conference with Tom Temin. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure experience and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career perfect well thank you sasha and thanks to everyone for listening i'm shane canfield and this has been the lessons in leadership podcast talk to you next time Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.